Okay, so last week I, uh, I had us stand and read the Word of God. We're going to do that again. So why don't you stand up? Kiddos, I'm going to need you to uh, stand up with me as well. And uh, if you were here last week, I, uh, I had us practice um, a common call and response at the end of the Word, the reading of the Word. And I realized that we are not... Many of us are not from a high church tradition, and that's okay, actually, that makes sense to me. So when I said, this is the word of the Lord, and no one responded, I realized I needed to be a better leader and coach you guys through how that works. So after I read this, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you are going to say, thanks be to God, okay? That's just a call and response, uh, honoring the word of God. So I'm going to read this. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Week two of our Matthew series, and I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, it'll also be on the screen. It says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, yeah, you crushed it. Good job. You can have a seat. Thanks so much. Oh, such a proud pastor right now. Such a proud pastor. So we're in week two of our Matthew series. I'm excited about it. And uh, I want to do something. Kids, I'm going to need your help with this as well. So I need you listening up. I'm going to read the, a list of accomplishments of a famous professional athlete. And I would love to know if you can guess who it is, okay? So just keep track in your mind. Maybe just hold on to it when you know who it is, and the earlier, obviously, the more impressive. So the first accomplishment is this. This person in 1995 won the Amateur Championship, was the Pac-10 Player of the Year, was an NCAA First Team All-American, and won Freshman of the Year honors. Okay. Then in 1996, this person won a national championship and competed in the sport's most famous event, it's in my opinion, and then turned professional as a 20-year-old. At 20 years old, they became a professional in their sport. At 20 years old, they signed a lucrative deal with Nike, won Rookie of the Year in their sport, and won their first major event. This person has a total of 131 professional victories, 
They've won 15 major titles. For you sports people, this is probably narrowing down. And they're widely regarded as one of the greatest golfers ever. Tiger Woods, that's right. I'm talking about Tiger Woods, Eldrick Tiger Woods. And he has been a successful golfer from a very early age. But Tiger will tell you that it came with a lot of practice. He practiced golf a lot. As a boy, Tiger and his dad would actually go down to the local golf club and he would hit balls for hours. Golf ball after golf ball after golf ball, hour upon hour upon hour, mastering his young swing. At age three, here's the thing, at age three, he played nine holes of golf and finished with a score of 48. <laughs> now, there's a few of you in here thinking to yourself, I haven't even done that. Yeah, you're right. And as a three-year-old, that's exceptional, okay? At eight years old, he played his first 18-hole round. That was under 80. He shot under 80 as an eight-year-old, okay? I think Randy has still yet to do that, right, Randy? I'm just kidding, Randy. I, it's because I haven't followed through. I promised to help him out, so we're going to have him shoot under, under 80, no problem. He has a long list of amateur and professional accomplishments. And all of this was the result, by his own admission, of a lot of practice. At the peak of his professional success, Tiger had an intense training routine. This is what he said in Men's Magazine. At the peak of his professional success, this is his daily routine. He would wake up and he would run four miles. I'm out. I guess I'm never going to be a great golfer, okay? Then he would do his daily lifting routine. Then he would play nine to 18 holes. He would then return back to his house where he worked on his short game. Then he would run four more miles and then finish his day with either a game of pickup basketball or a friendly tennis match. I imagine with him, nothing's friendly, but he's competitive, right? He would do that routine every single day he was not competing in a professional tournament. That's a lot. That's a lot. And the point is, as great as he was in competition, the reason I tell you this story in general is because it was actually the preparation, by his own admission, it was the preparation that allowed him to be so successful as a professional. The fruit of his success was rooted in being well prepared, well practiced in his sport. Now there's a there's a psychologist named Anders or Andres Erickson, depending on how you pronounce it. And he's a professor at Florida State University. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. You probably understand his research though in just a moment. He's actually an expert in the field of high performance. High performance in any field. Just the high performance, whether you are in golf or building things or speaking or teaching, whatever you're good at. He's an expert in how to be a high performer in that field. But he specifically um, wants to know how a person becomes an expert to the thing that they give the most time and energy to in their life, right? And so he's actually famously known as the researcher 
whose work is the basis for Malcolm Gladwell's rule of 10,000 hours. Maybe you've heard this rule. 10,000 hour rule, okay? If you are not familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work, he famously posed the idea that if a person spends 10,000 hours practicing something, that they will actually master that thing. Okay, 10,000 hours. So just in case you were wondering, if you wanna be a master at whatever you are, you need to spend 10,000 hours doing it. Okay, that's a lot. But Erickson actually refined this concept because it was his work that Gladwell would base this rule on. And he would say that simply doing something for 10,000 hours was not enough. Rather, training for 10,000 hours in an intentional and designed way to help you grow where you are weak. So not just doing something 10, 000, for 10,000 hours kind of nonchalantly, but intentionally learning how to get better where you are weak, to design it intentionally, and to have a good teacher who can watch you and correct you guiding you into better practice. That was where he refined it. So 10,000 hours of intentional practice with somebody watching you saying, hey, you need to do this a little bit better. The swing is a little shallow, right? You're coming over the top or whatever your preferred thing is to have somebody guiding you into better practice. So you consider this research and a little bit of my own experience with golf, I can say this, it's easy then to understand why Tiger was so successful in the big and important moments. He became a master of his craft, succeeding on the largest stage because he dedicated himself to practicing for those big moments over and over and over, over and over and over. Dallas Willard, Maybe you've heard this name. He's a famous philosopher. He's also a Christ follower. He was a professor and an author, and he wrote a number of works about the nature of spiritual discipline. He wanted to understand why some people had passive faith and others had active faith. And so he would study that. And then in a book titled The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives, Willard captures an important sentiment about the nature of the practice of being prepared. He says this, it'll be on the screen. The star performer himself didn't achieve his excellence by trying to behave a certain way only in the game. Instead, he chose an overall life of preparation of mind and body, pouring all his energies into that total preparation to provide a foundation in the body's automatic responses and strength for his conscious during the game. In other words, as Willard highlights and also as Erickson and Gladwell point to, practice prepares you for un performing under pressure. Practice prepares you for performing under pressure. I just wanna tell you, that was great alliteration in case you weren't paying attention. That was four Ps, okay? Again, practice prepares you to perform under pressure. So last week, if you were here, hopefully if you weren't, you caught it online, we spent our time looking at the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus commands his disciples to go and make more disciples by teaching them to obey every command that he had taught. And I highlighted last week that Jesus lived in a time 
and a place where the primary philosophical question was how does someone live a good life? We want to live good lives, don't we? That was the framework for everyone's philosophizing. Every philosophy, Greek, Roman, Eastern, in every organized society as we know it today, and all of the philosophers in every belief system even, they were asking the same primary question. So when Jesus taught, all of the non-Jewish listeners were hearing his teachings through that lens. They were hearing Jesus' teaching, his musings, his teachings, his commands were all about how to live a good life. That's what they were thinking. And that is part of the reason why Jesus is such a compelling teacher. Because his answers to those questions were very different than all of the other philosophers. What made Jesus compelling to the non-Jewish listener was that his teachings were so counter-formational to popular culture in the day. His teachings included brand new ideas like societal value for women and children. Human value for the poor and the outcast. Social inclusion for the foreigner. Cultural value around the household family unit, including value in every single family role. Those are new ideas in Jesus' time because of him. These ideas, which we all seem to value and recognize as important parts of Western culture today, they were not popular opinion in Jesus' day. They were not. And so this drew a lot of attention to Jesus as he taught the kingdom of God principles. And he also taught us to live a very specific way of life. In a time period where the expressions of power and wealth and privilege often resulted in someone being able to exploit another person without any social or legal pushback. Jesus taught in a counterformational way about loving one another, regardless of circumstances, regardless of position, caring for the widow and the orphan, people with powerful positions, using those positions and their resources to call forth as they serve the less fortunate. So when people in Jesus' day ask the question, how do I live a good life? Jesus' answers cut against the grain of popular philosophy. That's why we're calling it counter-formation, because it's formation that is counter to the popular ideas of modern culture. And so today's passage, it tells a story. We're going to get back into it in just a moment. It tells a story about how Jesus prepared himself for the biggest moments of his life, both in ministry and in relationship. Through ways that are counter-formational, counter to the popular opinion of the day, Jesus would prepare himself. He would live in a way that allowed him to be ready for these big moments. So let's return to the passage that we read at the beginning in Matthew 4, if you have it in front of you. I'm going to read just the very first verse. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil right away. We have a very big moment in front of us, don't we? If you're Jesus and you've been led into the spirit to be tempted by the devil, directly by the devil himself, this is a big moment, right? If any of you called me and said, Pastor Rick, the devil's leading me into the wilderness, what should I do? Well, I would give you different pieces of advice, but I would tell you, regardless, 
It is a big moment for you. It's a big moment, right? And so this feels like a good time. Just quick pause. A very important public service announcement. Just in case you have not be, been clear, been clearly directed to or have forgotten the verse that I've been reading to you every single week for the last four months to tell you about the devil's intentions, I'm going to read it to you again. It's from John 10, 10. I've actually even changed up the translation for you today so that you can get a little different spin. I'm reading from the message. John 10, 10. These are Jesus's own words. He says this, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they've ever dreamed of. Than they've ever dreamed of. The thief is only there to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. I always get that wrong. And yet Jesus is saying, but I have come. The formational, the counterformational ways that I've commanded us to live as Christians, they are going to lead to a life better than you've ever dreamed of. So we know that the devil is a thief and that he's only leading Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness, to try to steal, to try to kill, and try to destroy. And we know his intentions. Jesus knew his intentions. The devil himself knew his intentions. And so what we find for Jesus is he's in a very big moment. Now, there are only two possibilities from my perspective as to why Jesus would even be in this moment in the first place, okay? So here's the first one. That the thief, this is possibility number one, hear me out. The thief was so tricky, he was so deceitful that even Jesus initially was deceived and deceitfully led into that moment. Now this seems unlikely, I will admit, because Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not going to be deceived by that. He knows the devil well. It even says here that he was led by the Spirit. But just in case that were the case, let's just play pretend for a second. It should give us as Christ followers a very stark warning into the effectiveness of the devil's deceit. Okay, if that were the case. But I'm going to paint for you a picture that's maybe a little bit more likely. The scenario where Jesus is taking on the role of teacher and role model to offer his disciples a vision for a successful way to live out these big moments. What's more likely is that Jesus was taking on this role, allowing himself to experience this temptation so that there's an account for those of us today who are also going to be deceived by the devil in very tricky ways that we might see, okay, this is how Jesus prepared for these moments. I should probably do the same. And so what do we observe Jesus doing? In Matthew 4, 2 and 3, we see what Jesus was doing right before this moment, or right as it led up to this moment. It said, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus' preparation was 40 days of fasting. Anybody want to join me? No? Okay. Yeah. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> In some ways, it feels like it's not for the faint of heart, but I, I actually wonder, is it for the faint of heart? 
Maybe this is exactly what someone with a weak spirit or weak willpower to resist the enemy and his tricks, maybe that's what this person really needs. Maybe that person really needs to be fasting and praying. See, on the surface, someone might think to themselves that the reason Jesus was led into the wilderness was to be tempted because he was weak and hungry. If you fast for 40 days, you will be weak and hungry. And so we see this primary tactic the enemy uses to get Jesus to give into his hunger through temptation. He says, hey, just turn these stones into bread. I know you're the son of God. I know you can do it. Just give yourself a little bread. But as we observed in the passage, we observed this in Erickson's research and Gladwell's writings and even Willard's observations, Jesus' preparation through fasting was at least a big part of the practice that prepared him for this big moment. Fasting. Jesus was going to be tempted by the devil. And so what did he do? He went and deprived himself of food. He fasted and he prayed. So here's the counterformation point that I want to highlight today. Even though Jesus was hungry, it was the act of fasting that actually gave him the strength to resist temptation. Modeling for us the idea that through the practice of fasting, he was ready for the big moment. See, one of the lenses we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew with is the idea of the way that Jesus is modeling for us to live. The way of life that he's commanding that we practice. But fasting is not the only practice that we see Jesus model in this account. When the devil tempts Jesus by suggesting that he turn the stones into bread, here's how Jesus is, here's Jesus' response, and it's really, really good. Check it out. In verse 4, he says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' response to the devil's temptation to feed himself was, I don't necessarily need bread right now. I need the word of God. And then he quotes scripture. He references scripture in Old Testament passage. Deuteronomy 8 verse 6 says this, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. So again, Jesus models for us and his disciples that knowing the word of God by heart was part of his preparedness for this big moment. Practicing the rhythm of reading and memorizing scripture is one of the commands Jesus gave to, gave to his disciples. He gives it to us. And he compares knowing scripture to understanding, or sorry, and understanding how to apply it to your life to life-sustaining food. He compares the words of God to life-sustaining food. Now, your life is sustained by food, but more importantly, by the word of God. I think that's the point Jesus was trying to make. You do need food, and more than food, you need the word of God. That's how much it matters. These commands, fasting, praying, reading scripture, these are for our benefit. They're for our benefit. And so if you were here last week, you heard my bold statement. I'm going to read it to you again. The only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. Again, the only path to true human flourishing, to the best life, the full life that Jesus talks about, is to know and obey 
the teachings of Jesus. The reason why Jesus commands that we live the way that he lives is because he wants us to live that full life. I want that full life for me. I want that full life to you, for you. I want to know how Jesus approached life, the way he practiced, the way he lived, so that I can be also prepared for the big moments. Now, remember, the thief is going to come only, again, to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus comes to show us the pathway to the full life, here and now. Will there be pain? Yes. Will there be sorrow? Yes. Will you have trouble? Yes. But you're going to be prepared for those big moments. You're going to be prepared for the ones that are pain-inducing and sorrow-inducing and trouble-inducing. And they will not defeat you because like Jesus, you will be prepared. The practices of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the counter-formational way of Jesus is given to us so that we might thrive despite the best efforts of the thief. Dallas Willard, still using the analogy of a prepared athlete, he says this. I was struck by this quote, and I think you will be too. A baseball player who expects to excel in the game, baseball players, okay, that accept, ex expect to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than a Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise in godly living. We cannot be expecting ourselves to respond in a godly manner to the pressures of life if we are not practicing the way of Jesus. Willard, Erickson, Gladwell, they're all drawing from a deep spring of wisdom that actually is Jesus' own wisdom himself. This verse, Matthew 27, I'm sorry, 24 through 27, these verses are this wisdom. These are the, the spring from which the wisdom that all of these other smart people have built upon. And you've heard it many times before. It's the reason why we've decided to be Foundation Church. And so I want to read this to you. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, Willard knew, Erickson and Gladwell probably maybe also knew, when they were writing their stuff, that Jesus is the OG genius behind this type of wisdom. Specifically, the wisdom that practice leads to preparedness that will allow you to perform under pressure. That's Jesus' wisdom. That's Jesus' wisdom. And many people have helped us see that for thousands of years since. I read you a couple of the modern ones, but the fact remains that there is no way for us to excel, to succeed, to stay intact if we're not following and practicing the way of Jesus. So here's the question that we're going to 
asks our, or ask ourselves, I guess it's one that I feel like I'm at least led to ask myself when I consider this, I hope you will too. Am I practicing a way of life that will prepare me for these big moments? Am I practicing a way of life that will prepare me well for these big moments? I think all of us could admit that we love to avoid these hard moments in life, the big ones, right? We'd love to avoid, we'd love for life to just be roses and candy, days at the lake, great rounds of golf where you don't shoot 150. Right, Jeff? <laughs> but we all know that they're coming, right? We know. We know that those moments are coming. The more life you've lived, you know that they're, you probably have more confidence in the fact that they're coming, right? So I will take the wisdom of Jesus and I will apply it to my life so that I can become a person who stands, who stands like a house that when the waves and storms and winds of life beat against it, I will not crumble. How about for you? Will you practice a way of life that Jesus is inviting you into that will allow you when the storms come, when the winds beat against the walls of your house, when your life is under a ton of immense pressure, that you do not get crushed by it. This is the deep work that Jesus called us to in order that we might become these strong houses. Last week I talked about the idea of becoming more like Jesus through deep work in community over a long period of time. That's the commitment we're making as a church to each other and to ourselves. Because Jesus is indeed calling us to deep work. This is not going to be easy stuff. This is not going to necessarily be light stuff. Is it going to be good? Yes. It's going to be so good. You will be encouraged. You will be brought to life in a new way. Ways that you could never have imagined, just like Jesus promised in John 10.10. 10. But it is deep work. It's going to require peeling back layers and offering forgiveness and forgiving ourselves and getting past the shame that the devil wants to heap upon your life. It's the deep work that we need to do to become these strong houses. But you are not alone. This work was never meant to be practiced alone. It's meant to be practiced in the community that we call the church, Foundation Church, for you. That's where you get to practice this. That's where you get to, to work this out in your life. Deep work in community. And I want you to know that when you're discouraged by how hard sometimes it feels to develop these, that we are praying for you, we are praying with you. When it's hard for me, I hope that you are praying for me. Because I know I'm not alone. I have Jesus, but I also have the gift of the church. Jesus has given that to us. And probably the hardest part of that, I said this last week as well, is that it is indeed over a long period of time. 
Good things don't come easy. They don't come fast. We know that. And so we should not expect these things to happen overnight. But rather we can commit ourselves to each other and to the deep work, to doing it over a long period of time that we might become more and more like Jesus. So that again, we can be those houses that are built on rock that are not going to get tossed and turned by the waves of life. Foundation Church is committed to learning the ways of Jesus, to doing the deep work in community, to master it over 10,000 plus hours with intentional practice, right? Not just lackadaisical, oh, I'm kind of doing this, but actually intentionally practicing the ways of Jesus with other people around us to say, hey, maybe you should try doing this a little differently. That might help. Right? We have the Holy Spirit encouraging us, hey, tweak this a little bit. That might help. And we're going to do it over a long period of time. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. Then we're going to sing a song. But the Gospel of Matthew is going to encourage us over the next couple months. It's going to show us, it's going to highlight for us the things, the commands that Jesus is calling us into. And some of these things are going to be awkward. I don't know how many people practice the gift of Sabbath, but I tell you what, a couple years ago when I started doing it with intentionality, it filled my soul. I don't know how many people are used to praying on a regular basis, on a daily basis, hopefully, or reading the Word of God or fasting. But these things that we're called to, these ways of life that Jesus is calling us to, are for our benefit. I just want to say that over and over and over. They are not rules to regulate. But they are gifts that allow us to thrive, to be those houses that when the winds of life and the storms of life come, and that's, I want that so deeply for every person. So that's what we're committing to. That's what we're committing to as a church and as a people who follow Jesus. So let me pray for us, God. We thank you for these reminders, these beautiful reminders, this moment where you're you're cast into temptation by the devil himself, a very big moment in your life. Jesus, you model for us this preparation, so I pray that you would soak it into our souls. Because, man, there's so many things in our lives right now that are hard. Storms are coming. We see them in the distance, or we're in the thick of them right now. Waves are beating against the walls of our lives. Family members who don't know you, that need to know you, and they just refuse to give in to the call of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Health issues, financial issues, relational issues, spouses, friends, siblings. God, we know that you see each and every one of them, that you're with us, that you've invited us into this way of life. And as the song said before, we even read this scripture, God, we're fighting a battle that you've already won. And so, God, I pray that we would embrace that. That we would remember that as we go through these days, as we encounter these storms, as we encounter these winds and these waves, that you've already won the war. And God, as you've invited us into this way of life, that we would indeed obey your commands so that we can flourish. God, may the people in this church and in every Jesus-believing church in the world flourish as we obey your commands. 
we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. On your seat, you should have a communion.